Welcome again, everybody. My name is Casey. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here, and I am so excited for today. I, I really believe the, the Lord has a very sweet word for our church. So if you do have a Bible, you can still open up to Joshua chapter 2. That's in the Old Testament. That's past Exodus. That's past Genesis, so on and so forth. You'll see it there. But I want to start with just a little small idea. You see, many years ago, a man by the name of Paul Hebert started to question what it means to be a Christian. What it means to be a Christian. Because at that time, what was happening is if you professed Christianity, you looked a certain way. You smelled a certain way. You ate a certain way. You watched certain ratings of movies a certain way. Essentially, you fell into these religious borders. There's got to be people here, both Christian or not, who believe that's just what you do when you are religious. Well, Paul Hebert called this bounded sets. He goes, that mindset is called bounded sets. It is an us versus them mentality where everybody on the inside is accepted, loved, and welcomed. While those on the outside of these borders are kept away until they change their beliefs and their behaviors, and then they fit the requirements to come in. Hebert said, no, 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 no. Hebert presented a new way, which he called centered sense, where it wasn't about being boarded in, but it was about your direction and the movements towards what's in the center, namely Jesus. Famed author C.S. Lewis, he'll, he'll fill in some of the details. This will hopefully flesh it out. Lewis said, the world does not consist of 100% Christians and 100% non-Christians. There are people, a great many of them, who are slowly ceasing to be, be Christians, but who still call themselves by that name. Some of them are even clergymen. Some of them are even pastors, he's saying. So that's the direction. Then he goes on to say, there are people who are slowly becoming Christians, though they do not yet call themselves so. I wonder if that's anybody in here. There are people who do not accept the full Christian doctrine about Christ, but who are so strongly attracted by him that they may, or so that they are his in a much deeper sense that they are themselves understand. So today I'm not trying to make a case for the philosophy of bounded or centered sets. That's not what we're doing this morning. But I'm rather using it as a lit fuse to ask the questions about our own bounded sets that dwell deep within our heart. Meaning, where might you set the bar. When are you set the bar of somebody as a Christian or spiritual or faith-filled, meaning just particular collective church, who do you welcome in this room to sing with us, to eat our donuts, like whatever it is, who do you accept into this room? But also the same question is who's not welcome, meaning can Trump sit right there and everybody be cool with it? Can Kavanaugh sit right there singing with us? Can Kaepernick sit right over there? Can Hillary sit right there? Can an angry atheist who is pissed off at God sit right here? Can a transgender man or woman sit right there? Or how about this? How about a prostitute? Can she or he sit right there? For centuries, both Christian and Jewish scholars and theologians have tried to scrub and sanitize the scriptures of just that. That there is no place among spirituals or God's holy plan for that level of a sinner. But today, the book of Hebrews commemorates the faith 
of a harlot. To really wake you guys up, the faith of a whore. By the name of Rahab. This woman sold her body for sex. And we were reminded of that, not just once, but five times throughout the entire Bible. Once in Joshua 2, two in Joshua 6, once in the book of James in the New Testament, and of course, the book of Hebrews chapter 11, where she is the second to last woman mentioned in Hebrews 11, taking her place amongst Moses and Abraham. Let's read it. Hebrews 11, verse 31. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Now the Bible is brimming, whether you know this or not, Christian or not, the Bible is brimming with story after story of prostitutes or the sexually immoral. From Jezebel to Delilah, who, Delilah, who we'll be talking about in a couple weeks with Samson, to Gomer, for anybody who's looking for some kids' names, Gomer's a beautiful name for a little girl to Tamar, all the way to Rahab. But crazy enough, to some here's disbelief, many of these women, many of these prostitutes are God's seamless delight. If we read the New Testament, Christ's very ministry is filled with encounters of the sexually broken. Now, just so it's clear, this is an approval of their behavior, but if we pay attention to the taps of the Bible, God is trying to make a point to all of us. The writers of scripture are trying to make a point to all of us. That being that could prostitution make a powerful backdrop of God's love? That's the point it's trying to make. Could prostitution or the sexually broken make a perfect backdrop for God's scandalous grace or his shocking mercy? I believe, and, and, and you can argue with me on this, and it's open for argument, but I believe broken and sexual sins and sexual, broken sexual lifestyles are the lakehead that all streams of pain, loneliness, shame, guilt, fear, and depravity all pour into. And yet, that is where God wants to be. The lakehead where all of it pours into. So as we read Joshua chapter two, Rahab's story, know this, not only does she heartbreakingly sell her body for sex, but also she is a Canaanite, which what that means that she is, um, she is not Jewish. So there are racial undercurrents to her story. And then just throw on top of that, that she's a woman, where culturally of that day, she was the lowest on the totem pole. She has all of it working against her. The entire deck is stacked against her. And that collective church is where God wants to be. That is where God chooses to be in the culturally, sexually, racially, equality brokenness of humanity. That is, he goes, no, that's my home. So read with me, Joshua chapter two, verse one. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim, not a fun word to read out loud publicly, as spies saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. And when they came into the house, uh, the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. So Jericho is also known as the city of palms. We have our very own palms. Anybody want to actually confess they're from palms? I will be honest. That's really surprising. I've never heard anybody claim palms. Because of every time I talk to somebody from palms, you know what they say? I'm from Culver. Or I'm like, I'm from... I'm from Rancho Park. No, you're not. You're from Palms. Like, you're from Palms. Bryce, you get it. Own it, dude. 
So this is Palms. Jericho is Palms. And it was located five miles west of the Jordan River, and it blocked the entrance to the Israelites' destination. Jericho's in the way, okay? We went over this last week, but this is a fairly small area, about eight acres. The actual palms, which the, our palms is considerably bigger than this. It's really small. Like I said, covered eight acres, but what it lacked in size, it made up for in its walls. So it had an inner wall, which was 12 feet thick, and had an outer wall, which was six feet thick, and it was 30 feet high. I have a pic. Bring it on. Look at this. I found this. Isn't this so cheesy? Oh, you guys like this pic. No, it's a great pic. Yeah. (laughs) This is palms. This is all apartments. This is it. (laughs) This This is Jericho, okay? I want you to notice. Keep it up for a moment. I want us to notice. The, uh, the inner, uh, it's like an Elysium of sorts. What that means is the outer wall surrounded the whole city, but the inner wall was enclosed and, and encapsulated where the, uh, the, the palaces and the temples and the rich would basically hang out. But the poor and disreputable people, like Rahab, would have to live in the outer compound. Okay? So most Christians or not are familiar with the very, very famous story of the walls falling at Jericho, but few of us, are familiar with exactly Rahab's very, very integral part. Essentially, these are Rahab's people, and she is going to perform treason. She's going to perform treason on her own people. So read with me verse 2 of Joshua chapter 2. The walls are falling right there right now. Verse 2, and it was, uh, it was told to the king of Jericho, behold, men of Israel come here tonight to search out the land. So obviously they're terrible spies. <laughs> That's just all that means. Hey, there's some spies here. Where are they? They suck. Verse 3, then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab saying, bring out the men who have come to you who entered your house for they have come to search out our land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. Soak it up. Because oh mama, Rahab is betraying her own country and it is punishable by only certain death. And not just her, they would wipe out, if they found out about her treason, they would wipe out her entire family. The ones she's trying to save, they would wipe them all out. And get this, she probably turned down fame and fortune. She probably turned down the opportunity to live inside the inner wall by doing this. Because if there would have been some prize for saying, hey, those jerks are right over there. There would have been a prize for that. So what we have to do is wonder, what inspires treason? What could bring somebody to do this and even deny a prize or a better life? Well, she tells us. She actually tells us why she would hide these men. Look at verse 8 of chapter 2. Before the men lay down, she came up to the roof and said to them, and you can almost imagine her whisper in the dark, right? It's whispering in the dark. She says, I know that the Lord has given you and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away. For we have heard of the Lord dried up the waters of the Red Sea, and you came out of Egypt, and what you did to those two kings of the Amorites who put you beyond Trados, and to Jordan Sihon, and the OG, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard of you, and get this, this is so beautiful, and as soon as we heard of you, our hearts melted. And there is no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and the earth beneath. (sighs) Easily one of the single greatest faith confessions in all of the Bible. So listen, Collective Church, what we're going to do today is going to be really easy. 
I'm going to have two points. God's risk and our risk. That's it. God's risk and our risk. So what do I mean by God's risk? Here's what I mean. I highly doubt anybody here would allow, if you have children, would allow your children to be babysat by Rahab. That girl gets it. (laughs) I highly doubt if wives, if you are married, wives would like their husbands hanging out with Rahab. Yet, she is God's choice to watch over the people. She is God's choice to allow these two men to stay with her at that night. So what do I mean by God's risk? What do I mean by that? It means that God absolutely, all of his plans and purposes and power at complete risk because of his means. Stay with me. This is what we've been talking about the last two weeks. God always chooses the way that is through the sea, the way that is through the walls, that way is through the Goliaths. God will always choose the most unlikely, unnatural, uncommon channels like harlots and hobos. And if that seems backward, if you approach something like that in your life, if this seems really backwards, that's probably the way God wants to go. Think about it. If you were to be able to create your own dream team or like super friends or like Ocean's Eleven or Ocean's Eight, girls can rob banks too. Like if you wanted, you were going to create your own dream team. Who would be on it? Who would be on it? Would Rahab the prostitute make the cut? Would Moses, the murderer, David, the adulterer, Peter, the denier, case of the handsome, like who would be on your team? (laughs) And yet in God's upside down grace, the most extravagant, bear with me in this, God's most, or the most extravagant of sinners receive God's most extravagant welcome. It's backwards. Are we starting to see how risky his, 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 and how dangerous his grace is? So I just thought I'd do a small litmus test or uh, help you come up with your own self-diagnostic if you guys know how dangerous and how risky his grace is. Okay? Here it is. So you're going to do this yourself. Don't answer out loud. Do you know and believe that God has just as much love and grace and longing and affection for for the 11 Jewish people gunned down in Pittsburgh as God has for the man who pulled the trigger. He has the same level of grace. And that should bother us. And once we're bothered by it, we're starting to get how dangerous and risky God is. How dangerous his grace is. God's grace, his undeserving love for very undeserving people is dangerous to bounded hearts. Maybe we're starting to uncover bounded hearts because could that gunman sit in this room? Rahab whispered to the spies, for we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea. We have heard a God who can do the impossible, do the wondrous, do the astonishing, despite one's inabilities, one's goodness, one's badness, one's vocation, or one's labels. And notice when the Israelite spies offered to spare Rahab's life, they said nothing about her lifestyle. They said nothing about their bounded worldview. Nothing first about, great, we'll save you. You got to get a new job first, girl. You are gross. They don't say any of that. 
None of that was part of the deal in order for her to be spared. You see, changing her life was not discussed. Why? Because it is God's goodness and it is God's grace which empowers us to do so. Us thinking we have to do this first and then go to God is backwards. It's wrong. See, I wonder how many Christians here or not this morning think that they have to sanitize their life or their heart before they call upon God. I can't go receive prayer. I'm dirty. I looked at porn last night. I got in a fight with my wife this morning. I can't go ask for prayer or take communion. I wonder how many of us are sweeping the corners before we let God in. If her level of despair or embarrassment of it is not an obstacle to God, then it should not be to us as a church. A prostitute knew this God and her heart melted. This challenges our faith, our warranted certainty. But we have to pit stop because Rahab is also known for something else, isn't she? We all read it this morning. Read with me one more time, starting in verse four. She also has another part of her reputation. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, true, the men came to me, but I did not know where they came from. <gasps> and when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly for you will overtake them. What a freaking liar. <laughs> She's a liar. Okay, I cannot tell you the amount of times I've had a conversation as a pastor for years where I catch somebody in a lie and they go, yeah, but... Rahab lied. And that's why there's their excuses. Rahab did it. Yeah, Johnny, you can't lie. Rahab lied. That's like always the excuse. So welcome to some very fun controversy. Rahab just lied. She just lied about the location of the spies. You ready for this? Is it ethically permissible to lie in order to protect? Does the ends justify the means? Pastor Isaac is so pumped to come up now and answer this question, <laughs> wherever he is. Just for fun and, you know, poops and giggles, let's, 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 let's work this out, okay? We're going to spin this out for a moment and see how far this can go. I wrote down some examples. One of them is a sports analogy. It's about Quidditch. Does that count? I don't know. I don't know if that counts. No, it's not. Is it? It's the only sports I know. <laughs> is it ethical? Is it ethical for a football team to send a man in motion to the left-hand side when, in fact, they know they're running right? Is that ethically permissible? It's deception. Here's the next one. Is it ethical for police to operate radar in an unmarked car, deliberately deceiving us as if they were a civilian? Here's the next one. Is it ethical to lie to someone about where you're taking them, knowing full well that you're going to go to somewhere else and they're going to be proposed to or have a surprise birthday party? Is that ethical? <laughs> I hear lots of giggles and I don't hear a lot of answers. So again, this is, <laughs> this is my job, I guess. In a lot of ways, this is hard to answer. Because on one hand, nowhere in Scripture does the Bible ever explicitly say or approve of lying anywhere. Anywhere. If anything, to God, lying may be probably the most devastating of sins that man could ever commit. And we also must remember, because we as a church believe in the devil, we believe Satan is real, but his title isn't the father of murder, or the father of rape, or the father of theft. His title is the father of lies. 
So I wanted to bring this up because in the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament, there's this fun little list. It's a really gnarly list and it's of what God hates. Like he just, here's everything God hates. Here it is. I'm gonna read it to you. Proverbs 6. There are six things the Lord hates. There's like seven which really take him off. They're like an abomination. Verse 17, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. Verse 18, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil. Verse 19, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among uh, brothers. Out of the seven things, God says two of them are about lying. I mean, this is a small list, and he's like, you know what? Lying again. So allow me to answer this question through Rahab. The New Testament commends her for what she did, not what she said. So her, her actions were of faith, not her lie. Rahab, the new believer, we have to remember, is never applauded for her ethics, but she is applauded for an example of faith. So was that the truth? No, it was a lie. Was it necessary? I'm going to go no. No. It was not necessary. Because I have to ask myself, would the Red Sea parting God have protected the spies if she told the truth? Yeah, I gotta believe so. I gotta believe so. We would just have a very different story of how God protects the spies. So I can never ever, as a pastor, friend, brother, whatever, justify this deception. But we can commend her for her courage in the case of hiding them. So essentially, I'll end with this pit stop saying We need to have fervent commitment to truth-telling as a church. So, end of pit stop. If you're about to propose or do a surprise birthday party, you're a sinner. Like, whatever you're going to (laughs) do. Just joking. Just joking. What I'm hoping all of this does is not only humanize the immortalized 16, but beyond that, it wakes us to the fact that we are them, and they are us. This is where mentally we go, okay, I can see myself in Moses, who was racially exiled between people groups. Many here can can relate to that. Or people go, okay, I am Joseph, meaning I've had to spend my entire life waiting for a kid or for a spouse or for a job. Many people can relate to that. But are we to the point yet where we can go, I am Rahab, I am a prostitute? Are we at that point yet? Even sexually, I agree with author Somerset who said, there's hardly anyone whose sexual life, if it were broadcast, would not fill the world at large with surprise and horror. I say this because I don't want us to use Rahab as an amazing example of faith and risk and grace, but also not an example of of, of desperation and depravity. Rahab was mightily aware that she needed to be saved from it. Are we aware? that we need to be saved from our brokenness. Any time I get to talk to somebody about the love of Jesus or the gospel, this is what never lands. This is never, I mean, it's rare, but it's like you first have to get to the absolute brokenness where you go, each of us are Rahab. I am Rahab. I am selling myself out. I am sexually broken. I am carrying a label. I am carrying a scarlet letter like Rahab. If you remember Nathaniel Hawthorne's 1850s book, The Scarlet Letter, he penned a character named Hester who was convicted of adultery and was made to wear a red A. And everywhere she went, she had to shamefully yell out and announce her wrongdoing. 
Adultery. Adultery. Wherever she was. I'm wondering if your guilt is doing that to you. Constantly yelling out. You walk through some doors here. Walking to a neighborhood dinner. Walking with friends in a discipleship group. Do you have a scarlet letter that is yelling out? Perhaps there are people even in this room, we can't be so naive to not at least ask the question, who have actually been part of prostitution. Perhaps there are people in this room who have aborted a baby. Perhaps there's people in this room who have divorced a spouse, cheated on a lover, stolen from their work, committed fraud, and it's because of that scarlet letter that you now shy away from approaching God. Or it's because of that scarlet letter, that label, that you hesitate to be part of a church community or engage. If that's the case, man, this community so wants to welcome you and love you. I want to encourage you with this. As broken people, I'm speaking now on behalf of Collective Church. As broken people, I want you to look at this list in Matthew chapter 1. Hopefully this changes any sort of scarlet letter. Friends, this is, uh, this is a genealogy. This is a very long and boring, name, uh, boring list of names. We know, right? And they're all really hard to pronounce, but I want you to look at the ones that are bold. Look at verse 3, and Judah, the father of Prez and, and, and Zelda, by Tamar. <laughs> Tamar, Tamar, Tamar. Look at verse 5. And Sam and the father of Boaz by Rahab. And even look at the end of verse 6. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Do we have any idea what this means? Are we getting the gravity of what we're looking at? In the ancient world, genealogies determined a person's identity. Whether you came from an honorable family or a shameful one, this determined your, 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 your character, your social status. And what we're looking at here, if you look at verse 1, is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And it's listed five women. Absolutely, total mind-bend revolutionary because in this patriarchal society, male genealogies were everything. And Jesus lists five women. And guess what? They're not Rebecca. They're not Sarah. No. Tamar, the Canaanite woman who dressed up as a prostitute in order to have sex with her father-in-law. She's listed. We have the widow, Ruth, listed. There was the mistress of King David, listed. Mary, the mother of Jesus, a pregnant teenager, listed. And of course, the lying whore that is Rahab. All of these women were social outcasts whether it was due to their race, their gender, their ethnicity, or some sort of sexual fracture. And guess what? This is where you find Jesus. I love that Rahab was lowering the spies by a rope. Again, she's just beef, like just lowering two men by a rope. What an example. Let me read this to you, though. Behold, when he came into the land, this is the spies talking to her. Again, maybe they're downside the wall and they're trying to whisper. The spies look up and, look up and say, you shall tie the scarlet cord in the window through, your, through, uh, through which you let us down. And you shall, t- uh, shall gather into your house your father and your mother and your brothers and all of your father's household. Okay. So then on one hand, you have a scarlet cord and it's probably the easiest to see at nighttime. I get it. Then on the other hand, I can't help but read and see into this the final plague 
of Egypt in Exodus, where God said, place lamb's blood on your doorpost to be spared. So as God saved all those by a scarlet door, he also saves all those with a scarlet cord. This tells us Jesus removes scarlet letters and replaces it with scarlet blood, scarlet cords, scarlet doors. This tells us if you allow Jesus into your messy corners, you no longer have to try to escape your past. He redeems it. He makes it new. Like he did with his perverted family tree, he constantly, constantly, constantly is placed there in the midst of absolute pain. This shows us, his genealogy shows us who Jesus wants to be with. Thus, and in closing, who we should be with. So I'm going to close with this. I want to end on Joshua chapter 6, verse 25. But Rahab the prostitute, so this is after everything's happened. The walls fell on her father's household and all who belonged to her. Joshua saved alive. Now get this. And she lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers from whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. And she has lived in Israel to this day. She was absolutely one of them. There's no fences with Rahab. Rahab in Hebrews chapter 11 also says, has given them a friendly welcome. So if this story or today was like a wet rag and you were to just drip it out, the weighty and powerful idea of hospitality would just splash all over the floor. God's hospitality by welcoming Rahab, absolutely risky. Our hospitality by welcoming in others, absolutely risky. Now I know, again, in closing, now I know this idea of hospitality conjures up aprons and baking and Martha Stewart, like, oh, welcome here, like whatever it is. Like, I know it does that. But this is so much more than just a freaking dinner. Hospitality literally means an intentional lifestyle of showing kindness or entertaining others. Not something done once in a while, but a lifestyle. And some of us are like, okay, yeah, I can track this. I'm into this, Casey. I can do this. Here's the part where people get tripped up. It's something that has to be self-initiated and extended to all people, not just people who are like us, or not just people who graduated from the same university. God came to unite USC and UCLA alike. (laughs) Not only to just couples that we need to have in our lives, not only just single people we need to have in our lives, not only just people our own age we need to have in our life, not only people of our own skin color do we need to have in our life, People go from church to church looking for this, but rarely on the small men's do you guys see people starting or initiating this. The amount of people that have left collective church saying, you know what, it just wasn't hospitable enough. I'm going to go find somewhere else where they are already hospitable. Rather, what they're not realizing is they're going off to another church where somebody like them stayed and says, I'm going to do something about this. So, We are to welcome them into our lives as Rahab did, even if that means sacrificing our own comfort in favor of theirs. So allow me just to ask, is this a value in your life? This transcends opening homes. That's good and that's needed and we should be having people over for meals. Absolutely. If you're not doing it, do it. That's good. But this is about a position of welcoming and comforting others at the sake of ourselves. I was reminded this week of the story of, 
I think it was Jean Valjean and Les Mis. If you remember, did I say it right? I think it was a story, if you guys remember. He was a thief, and then he was released from the galleys, from prison, and he was brought in by a priest. And there's this really sad moment as he's lying there in his bed, and he can't deny the thievery that's in him, and he sees some candlesticks, and he takes them, and he runs. And then in the morning, he is brought back to the priest. You know what the priest does? He hands him more expensive silver candlesticks. And this is what he says. Though our lives are very humble, what we have, we have to, we must share. You see, a position of comforting others at the sake of our own comfort. Take this candlestick. Let me just practically play this out what this means. Because I know some of us need practically what, what, what good is hospitality. Here it is. It is an open home, an open life that doesn't define, but demonstrates a true and right Christian love. That's why hospitality is so difficult because we can talk about this crap all day. When we start doing hospitality, we are demonstrating Christian love. Practically, this means hospitality creates opportunities for relationship, for discipleship, and even evangelism, meaning it creates a natural context for about modeling marriage, modeling singleness, modeling dating, modeling parenting, and a host of other Christian virtues. We should be doing this. Practically, and last point, through the ministry of hospitality, we share what we value most all in one moment. Do we get that? Family, home, finances, resources, food, privacy, and our time. In other words, hospitality is a direct thing to go, I am sharing my life. That whole Christian thing about we do life together, I don't, want, I don't know what the crap that means, but hospitality has got to be the closest thing to it. Romans 15, 7, therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Did you just hear that? Did we just hear that? Hospitality can and must be seen as an embodiment of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So to say, I follow Jesus, but then we don't touch the sinner, embrace the outcast, put skin in the game on mercy, give generously of ourselves time, talent, and treasure, dine with others, hug harlots, befriend beggars, or forgive the worst of enemies 70 times seven, then we confess grace with our lips, but we mock it with our lives. Rahab welcomed in enemies. Jesus welcomed in enemies, that being us. So all of this implies that if the church misses out on hospitality, then guess what? We will eventually miss out on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And a collective church without a practiced gospel has no business, in my opinion, of being alive. We need to correct that course if we are heading down that path. So this starts with you as it starts with me. If we wait for others to initiate we will be a church of passive waiters. And let me just say, that is a very different, much slower death of community and church. May it start today by faith for us, for you, for me, to risk it all with grace and love for one another. Amen? Amen. Pray with me.